Hi, everybody. It is time for another After Class podcast. My guest today is Dr. Marius Ludica, and he is a professor here at CAS, and he's also one of my professors in the Marketing Strategy and Innovation Program. His research explores brands and contemporary consumer society with regards to consumer moralism, social conflicts, and acculturation. Marius teaches a few different subjects. Uh, They include communication, cultural innovation, brand management, interpretive research methods, and digital marketing. He also regularly works with startup and grown-up companies on developing their branding strategies. We had a very interesting conversation about one of his papers, and we talked a little more generally about branding and marketing. Uh, So I hope you enjoy this episode with Marius Ludica. I'm here with Marius Ludica, and uh, we're going to be talking today about a paper that he gave me to read and uh, published, and then we're going to kind of go into some more general topics, but uh, thank you for doing this and coming in. Um, So I guess I just wanted to start with the the paper that you gave me, and um, last time I attempted to summarize it and I left some gaps, so I'm going to leave it to you if you wanted to just summarize the paper and kind of its findings. Sure, sure, absolutely. Um, so for this paper, the research question was, how do local consumers uh, respond to immigrant consumers coming into a country and turning into consumers? So the background for that is, um, as you can see from the news and what happened in the last few years, is that um, there are more tensions developing in the Western world between local people, you know, autochthonous, uh, indigenous, you know, locals that have been raised, and born and raised in a country, uh, and those who come in into that country as, as new citizens. Uh, Brexit might be one outcome of that, where immigration discussions were massive. Um, so we have a lot of tensions about that going on. And my interest as a consumer cultural researcher was to see what does have consumption do with that. So does consumption on the part of the immigrants change anything in those relations and possibly affect uh, how it could turn negative or how it could turn sour and discriminatory um, in certain ways. So what I did, I collected data in a small rural Austrian village, uh, a little bit west of Innsbruck in Western Austria, um, where uh, the city has a history of immigration since about uh, the 60s. This is where uh, Turkish uh, workers from the Turkish countryside came into Austria to help those Austrian companies with their manufacturing of fabrics. So that town was famous for their for their um, cotton industry, and they needed workers after World War II, when their own workforce was basically diminished. So they brought in uh, a lot of Turkish people to work with them for a year, then sent them back, returned the next cohort of Turkish workers, sent them back again, which was known as a rotation principle. So after that, after the 60s, at some point, uh, the economy went down in the 70s, mid-70s, and that rotation principle no longer worked. So what happened was that uh, those Turkish workers were still you know, desperately needed, but they would not be sent back anymore, but actually stay and settle and at some point become proper Austrian citizens with a Turkish migration background. So the situation of this study is that in 2000, Uh, 11, 12, 13, 14, when I started collecting data, um, there were lots of tensions in that village between uh, 
the so-called Turks and the so-called Austrians, like the locals and the and those immigrants, uh, for all sorts of reasons, which made it a great context for me uh, to explore what is the specific role of consumption for these kind of problems. So I set out to talk to locals as well as to, to uh, Turkish background citizens and try to understand how do they relate to each other. So the approach that I took was to study how do the locals imagine their relationship to immigrants. So that means um, if you're getting in touch with a, with a new group or with a new colleague or someone else coming in, you might expect a certain type of relationship to govern the way you interact. So it might be a business relationship where you are into win-win situations, it might be a communal relationship where you are coordinating based on, on a sense of belonging, on, on family, on community. It might be an authority relationship where you have a superior and a subordinate person who coordinate based on hierarchies. That's something you find in companies most of the time. And lastly, you might coordinate through an understanding of equality, of give and take. Someone takes a certain measure and someone else gives back to an equal measure. So that's a theory uh, by Alan Page Fisker, who has, been, who has been developing this idea of the four relational models. So what I did was I tried to understand how do those locals imagine their relationship with the immigrants and how did it change through what they observed, for instance, how the immigrants would consume. So what I found, to finally mm -hmm. come to, you, to the answer <laughs> of your question, what I found that is in, uh, in three of those four types of configuration we see massive irritation. For instance, when it comes to community, uh, what happens in the market is that the uh, the Turkish immigrants now, you know, gaining more affluence, uh, being successful entrepreneurs, starting running their own businesses, acquired some wealth, so they could actually go and buy a house, and buy an expensive car, and buy, you know, all sorts of status consumption uh, vehicles. But the housing is the most important, because what I found from the locals is that uh, they they are very skeptical and possibly negative about having a Turkish. Uh, a immigrant living right next to them in the same housing complex. So what happens is that the locals think, you know, we don't want to sell this to a Turkish person. Please, if you have to sell your house and you move out, please sell it to a local, because we mm -hmm. cannot bear you know, dealing with those foreign cultures. What actually happens is that the, uh, that the Turkish consumers, uh, they pool their money, they throw their, their money together from, from a range of different families to buy a place, basically cash. Mm. So they pay a better price than the Austrians who rely on a bank, on an individual banking accounts. So what happens is that basically the locals would sell out those, uh, in technical terms we call it inalienable wealth, things like houses, sell it out uh, to the Turkish immigrants and then cause all sorts of trouble. Which then for our locals means that they are feeling insecure. Their own, their own community doesn't hold together anymore. The market and those market um, possibilities kind of infiltrate or allow allow a mixture between between Turkish immigrants and locals and that's something that locals struggle to deal with. They have to face that mm -hmm. and they know they do, that it's an unescapable kind of mechanism but because they are so so embedded in their own culture and because the other culture is so far away and because they have so little interaction with them they're very skeptical and that means that in this front of, of communal sharing of community the indigenous population, the locals make it very difficult for themselves by mm. rejecting immigrant consumers and kind of trying to keeping them apart because mm. they actually lose that battle, so to say, anyway. Mm. And that means 
if you have invested all your money into a house uh, and you expect the house value to rise, if someone moves in next door and the village agrees that this person moving in next door shouldn't be there, your house value will basically mm -hmm. tank. That mm -hmm. means your retirement savings and everything that's depending on it are you know, partially lost. And that's huh. a very powerful emotional problem. So we have, we have, <laughs> we have a lot of, we have uh, three more and I make them quicker. Uh, just to make sure. So oh, this, no, yeah. Uh, the, second, the second of the four findings is the authority ranking relationships change. So if mm -hmm. imagine yourself as a local uh, worker who has been, let's say, working as a dentist or so for a while, um, and you come to the conclusion that, that you're driving a smaller car because that's what you need, you know, a little mm -hmm. golf or a rabbit uh, in the American system. <laughs> and then, you know, next door or in the street you see a Turkish family driving a 7 Series BMW luxury car, but with the entire family in it. So the local hierarchy says the 7 Series driver is the more successful than the Golf driver because that's a more luxurious car. That means for locals they see themselves and say in the status hierarchy where the Turks are supposed to be a lower class than the indigenous, the local mm -hmm. population, um, that's screwed up. So now locals invent all sorts of ways of, of discrediting the Turkish BMW car. So they invent a doppelganger brand image, that's again our technical term for kind of a negative image about the Turk car. So they say this 7 Series is not the same than the one that a, the entrepreneur drives. You know, this is more shiny, this is you now kind of pimped up, this is, this is done in a different way. And for instance they say, look, this car is shared by the entire family, that's not freedom. For me, I need my own car. My little Golf is actually better because it's my own and I don't need to ask anybody. So they, they go to great lengths to re-establish that authority rank to make sure that they are that they are the ones in charge and the other ones are basically uh, still subordinate even though they're showing some sign of success in the market. Um, the third is the equality rules and that's, um, that is something where politics plays a big role. So in Austria at the time, uh, at the 60s, 70s, there were a lot of rules in place where, where immigrant workers could actually slightly exploit, legally, but slightly exploit the Austrian state. For instance, by uh, adopting families back in Turkey, uh, adopting the children of brothers and sisters in Turkey and then claiming benefits from the Austrian state for those children. So one of my informants tells me that she was working you know, a full-time job in a... Uh, in an agency somewhere, while at the same time the Turkish immigrant would work uh, a full-time job but also earn about three times more because of those adopted children. And that's something that was perceived as massively unfair. Mm -hmm. So if perceptions of unfairness come up, and we see that very often in, in, in the UK as well, that consumers complain, they are treated better than we are, it's not fair, you know, this is not how it's supposed mm -hmm. to be. Very often that the perception is wrong, but at some, you know, at some places it might not be wrong. Um, that, that aggravates people very much and that contributes to to those tensions and speci specifically in consumption if, if immigrants get privileges that locals think they don't have they get really angry mm -hmm. uh, and the last one, and that's a bit quicker, is that what I noticed is that um, even though there are a lot of racist and kind of, you know, you know racist thoughts among Austrians possibly as much as in other countries as well that's a small fraction, or that's a fraction of people that actually dislike, uh, fundamentally dislike people from other cultures and, and think their own people are the only worthy living on this planet, that, that ideology is out there. But I spoke to a lot of people that are quite normal, quite open, 
It says, I love travel to Turkey. I don't mind Turks, you know, overall it's all fine, but... So there's, mm -hmm. a, there's a larger moral that says, we want to be good, you know, humanistic, fair, equal people overall, Mm -hmm. But we struggle in our local town because of those other interactions, because of the instability that it causes and because of their kind of loss of power in dealing with the situation. Mm -hmm. So what I've found is we find lots of discriminatory behaviors, which are actually quite nasty, but not necessarily driven by, by a racist ideology, <laughs> but driven by local situated relational changes. Huh. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I wanted to go back just uh, briefly to the when you were talking about the housing and how the actual housing uh, the house's value could go down just by virtue of the attitudes that the people around that them hold. Uh, so is that you know that's something that they so basically their internal kind of attitudes towards the uh, Turks can. <laughs> determine the value of the the house just based on how they interact with the market. Is that essentially? Yeah, what I've what I've found often, for instance, there's another example that was quite telling. So there's a there's a block of houses and within the, you know, you see this in London everywhere, uh, like an inner courtyard. And mm -hmm. the common idea of those courtyards in in Austria, but also in the UK, is they are basically never used. No mm -hmm. one uses them really. So when the when the first Turkish family bought a flat in that block. They go out and use that place for barbecuing and for hanging out. You know, there's the, uh, some of the women here cooking and there's some guys there drinking tea and playing cards and there's a barbecue and the children. And um, for the locals, that's actually a disruption of the local rules on how they would use that space. It's completely perfectly legal. That's what it's made for. But that's not what it's used for normally in Austria. So what these women did is uh, some of them told me quite frankly in, on those hot days where uh, the covered woman would actually be out there in, in like, mm -hmm. uh, skin more covered up for religious reasons they would take their smallest bikinis and you know lounge out next to them huh. uh, almost naked you know next to the guys somewhere in the backyard which is actually a cultural insult of, of you know, massive proportion for those mm -hmm. for those other renters and uh, that way they basically kind of yeah coerce them out of uh, out of that housing complex huh. So that made them feel very much that you are not welcome here, which obviously doesn't help, you know, yeah. if you have a housing complex and you know that the structure is changing. You know, immigration mm -hmm. is nothing that the locals have caused, it's nothing that the Turks are responsible for, that's something that happens in our, in our globalizing world. And keeping these attitudes up, and rather than trying to integrate, rather than learning to get to know each other, rather mm -hmm. than discussing the issues with a barbecue and kind of trying to integrate them mm -hmm. and learn a bit from each other, they're going the confrontation track. Yeah. And confrontation means as soon as the next person of Turkish origin moves in, everyone is like, oh no, we need to do something about this. And they basically mob them away. Mm -hmm. But as soon as they know they can't do this any longer, um, that attitude takes down the value of the complex. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. Um, yeah, so I actually wanted to uh, know if the... So basically, your findings in this are these because this is kind of something I've encountered with reading a bunch of you know it's it's a little different in you know like scientific papers and stuff, but in uh, you know business and marketing papers and stuff. I'm just wondering what uh, you know are these findings that you know people should be you know you know business owners or uh, marketers should be aware of, or is this something you can actually act on and kind of you know intervene with? Yeah, the thing is that, that what I notice is at some point companies that that t 
tap into these kind of tensions that can do well and not so well. Mm. Uh, and it's important, I think it's important for those companies to understand what the dynamics are. Uh, I wrote a little article with my wife a while ago that the title was uh, When Flirting with New Customer Segments, Make Sure You're Not Already Married. Mm. And the logic of mm. that was that uh, in, in that particular research context, uh, an Austrian company that now starts to say, let's open up to the Turkish customer group a bit more. There are more people, that, you know, they have their own needs, they need different mm -hmm. things. We want to have them, we want to stock them in our supermarket. And also our workers, you know, some of the people working at the cash out, you now other people working for the company are of Turkish origin. So these companies very often are more inclusive and more open. And But then sometimes they don't recognize that they're doing things that are a bit too fast for the local mm -hmm. community. So one example was a, a packaging of a of a milk product that was an Austrian-wide production, and um, the once that was spotted on the shelves with a Turkish language uh, label to it, uh, some Austrians went berserk, saying, "You know, how could you do this? This is our milk. How can you label this in Turkish language?" Mm. So it was something where where the perception of those locals I spoke to was, these companies are betraying us. Now, we have been loyal for 30 years, 60 years, whatever. My family has been purchasing at this supermarket. And now this supermarket is catering to those other consumers. But rather than forcing them to learn mm -hmm. German, Austrian German, they kind of cater to their needs in their own language. And they mm -hmm. find this irritating. Yeah. So for a company, that's really difficult to, to strike this balance and get this right. Yeah. So I, what I'm suggesting from this, I haven't studied, you know, I haven't run experiments to say how yeah. far can you go, mm -hmm. you know, what are the, the moderators of this process. Yeah. But sometimes brands get it wrong. Mm -hmm. So for instance, Germany, a German Mercedes dealership at some point uh, thought because they have a lot of Turkish customers, they should have some sort of a tea saloon and have a carpet and, and serve tea to their customers and try to be Turkish. Mm -hmm. They could attempt of mm -hmm. catering to the yeah. customer groups. The Turks hated that. So, you know, we're not here for buying a Turkish product. We're here to buying a German product and the German mm -hmm. customer experience. We don't want that. So yeah. that was that was discontinued very quickly. Uh, but the sensibility about about the intercultural relations and what is expected is really important. Hmm. Yeah. So, uh, so I just wanted to add. So that kind of was that kind of deals with the you know the the marketers side of it and the you know the business side of it. But what uh, what role did consumers play in actually? Uh, you know, dealing with this, obviously it, it starts with just, you know, being a little more open-minded, but, uh, what, you know, what things can consumers do to make this transition a little easier? I think that's a very difficult one because mm -hmm. the, the consumers in Austria that I spoke to, they know that these changes are happening and they know that the changes are not induced by immigration and or not by immigrants per se mm. they know for instance that the smaller villages are losing are losing citizens their own children move away to the cities and pursue careers that are not available in a mm. place like uh, like that so they know basically the city is dying and at the same time an influx of immigration would help them to still have you know enough customers enough vibrancy to actually have a proper marketplace and to have shops that can survive so they know that this kind of integration is important and they know that the Turkish vegetable store, for instance, has fresher vegetables than, than their local supermarket. They know mm -hmm. that the Döner Kebab store is open all 24-7 and that mm -hmm. those, the guy that runs it is, is very hardworking, so they, they love those kebabs. So there's a lot of interaction going mm -hmm. on in the market. 
and I didn't find tangents in a market setting. Hmm. Fiscus fourth dimension is is uh, market pricing, market exchange, and I didn't see a lot of changes, a lot of tensions there. It seems to be working well, but when it comes to their own attitudes towards immigrants, uh, we know from social psychology that that a distance between, so lack of contact between groups is mm-hmm. is conducive to to negative or to tensions and conflicts between groups, and the second is the cultural distance. So an Austrian culture and a and the Turkish culture is very different religiously in terms of the rituals, consumption practices, there are massive differences. At the same time, the way that the Turkish families in Austria consume now is very much the same than, than Austrians consumed about 60, 70, 80 years ago. So even the headscarves is something that has been a staple notion for, for Austrian women for a long time. Mm-hmm. It's just about maybe about 100 years ago that that's, that was no longer required. Mm-hmm. But no Turk, no Austrian woman in the 19, 1910 or so would leave their house without a headscarf. Hmm. So now they're obviously complaining about this, uh, <laughs> other cultures coming in. Yeah. Uh, the second thing is that our Austrian consumers, some of them, actually are slightly jealous and, you know, they look back with kind of a nostalgic sense on on their own being more communal and having larger families and having mm-hmm. the family around, which they now see a lot of the Turkish families still do. Mm. And the reason for that is that markets are changing. We are more individualistic now. Those Austrian companies have acquired considerable wealth, so they don't depend on each other anymore, as smaller families do. Mm-hmm. But as soon as the Turkish population would get the same amount of wealth and the same amount of consum- consumption going on, they would inevitably change and be- become more like the locals. Mm-hmm. So what the locals do is by basically creating a glass ceiling and not letting them rise and not not accepting immigrants enough and not caring enough about them and trying to learn and, and mutually adapt, they basically keep them or try to keep them in a place slightly separate. And that creates obviously more competition rather than cooperation. That mm-hmm. creates all sorts of mythic understandings of what the others are up to and all sorts of you know, whatever terrorist ideas that they have in mind, which mm-hmm. then if you speak to the locals, uh, to the Turkish origin locals then, and Turkish origin consumers, that's a very different thing. And very mm-hmm. often I heard from the Turks that say, you know, the Austrians, they don't get what we do. They don't mm-hmm. understand. They don't understand that, that we're running, you know, a third of those businesses here in the village. We are important for this village. We care. Mm-hmm. We want to thrive, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's always easy to say, you know, we demand more openness yeah. from the Austrians, you know, please get involved and try to understand these families. Try to understand that the first generation immigrant woman that never learned to speak Austrian, that's one generation, and they, a lot of them are just not capable of doing that. But the second and third generation we have now is very different. They're mm-hmm. socialized Austrians, yeah. and a lot of them have basically almost disappeared and, and merged, we call this in, in technical terms, assimilated to the Austrian culture. Mm-hmm. You, would, you would tell from their looks, but not from their behavior and culture that they're any different. Mm. So, so there's a lot of good dynamic going on, and especially in Telfs where the Turkish immigration was induced by locals and the, the wealth of that city depends on those locals coming I think they have a particular duty mm-hmm. of being more open and being more inclusive and trying to get more in touch and then helping those communities to acquire wealth and to become part of the of the local culture because mm-hmm. after all I have not seen a western society changing or tipping down towards a, a Turkish culture no, it's yeah. 20% of consumers if they if they acquire wealth and become part of Austrian 
of that Austrian village, they will not change the village fabric in a way that Austrian culture disappears mm-hmm. and the, or the Turkish culture takes over. Historically, that has never happened anywhere. Yeah, and it, I mean, it only benefits them in the end, too, anyway, so it's, it it's in their own interest. Um, so this is kind of, I mean, the, these the, this kind of data collection, deep interviews and stuff, uh, I, I was just wondering, throughout all of this, you know, you're interacting with a lot of people in this village, were there any, you know, points or, like, kind of themes that changed your mind uh, when you were uh, doing the research? Yeah, I think... There are a few things that surprised me. One of them was um, the well, the creativity in changing and changing hierarchies. I think that was remarkable. The, this idea mm-hmm. of stripping a car off its its status value by mm-hmm. saying this is shared by a family that was remarkable. I had no idea how creative locals can get <laughs> in, in kind of trying to get the relational understanding right that they think should be there. Mm-hmm. Um, I. The second thing is that I did not expect is this sense of, of almost jealousy or nostalgia, almost sadness that I that I found in some interviews, especially with the older women that would sit in their nice houses somewhere on the on the hill overlooking the city, mm-hmm. basically being alone and saying that, you know, after my children left the house I I looked for other things of spending my day. And then mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm going, I'm walking by this playground where I see a Turkish grandma of my age surrounded by her, her children and grandchildren everyone is sitting there playing together and I'm thinking well you know what's right and wrong here so there is some sort of reflection going on about the benefits of this kind of consumer culture that has mm-hmm. emerged uh, and that's something I didn't expect I also didn't expect them to be so brutal in some ways <laughs> in discrimination mm-hmm. uh, the example I just mentioned about the bikinis in the backyard mm-hmm. uh, my informants told me these examples, you know, frankly outright. In Austria, I'm an immigrant too, you know, I'm of mm-hmm. uh, German origin. And it, there's not always the, the perception of Germans in Austria is not entirely positive either. Mm-hmm. So at some point, they would open up to me and tell me all these stories. And I thought, this is, this is remarkable. It was told in a sense of this is actually right, this is re establishing a balance, this is defending, you know, kind of acquired rights. And to some extent, I found that really puzzling. Huh. Yeah, yeah, that that sounds like it, you know, after talking to it, enough people there, it's, it is interesting to, to kind of get down below the surface level to all that stuff. But, um, so I just wanted to, because the, I found the, the kind of rotation program that happened between, uh, you know, in Austria with uh, the Turkish workers. And um, so I was just wondering if, the, if that kind of history between Turkey and Austria and those uh, rotation programs, if, if that was, um, you know, if that kind of created some unique dynamics that you don't see in other uh, cultures. Um, my... That's very difficult to tell empirically, but mm-hmm. but um, in the paper and the data, I hear people saying something like, "We didn't have a slave revolt yet." So mm-hmm. there's there's data. There was a, a, a some some conversation about a, a European soccer championship and how the Turkish immigrants would celebrate the victories of the Turkish team in that village where I collected the data. Mm-hmm. So then a local says, "Oh look, this you know here is the." a bunch of, of, of Turkish people waving Turkish flags, celebrating Turkey, right here within our village. And that mm-hmm. felt scary to them. Hmm. So now, these people I talked to were raised in a schooling system where the where the conflict between the Ottoman and the Habsburg Empire 
has been you know, a staple notion in, in mm -hmm. the curriculum. So they have learned, historically, there have been hundreds of years of conflict between the, the Ottomans and with their particular Muslim-oriented culture mm -hmm. and the Habsburgians, which have, you know, Austria has been an empire in the past as well, mm -hmm. quite substantially large, yeah. all the way to Istanbul. Uh, so, so between those empires, that has been has been quite notable, um, and there have been a, a siege of Vienna twice in in uh, Austrian Ottoman mm -hmm. kind of relationships. So, in that Western world, all over Europe, basically, uh, the the kind of Turkish or or Ottoman invasion is is a threat scenario. Mm -hmm. As you know from history, some parts of of Europe and Southern Europe as well has have been Turkish for a considerable time. And you can see those those Turkish influences in culture and in 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 buildings, etc. If you just travel to the south of Spain, you can see a lot of that. It's actually mm -hmm. quite interesting. So um, there was a relationship between admiration about the Ottoman warfare, about the skill, about the way that they organized themselves, also partially about the culture. You know, coffee came into Austria through Ottoman uh, oh. uh, interactions. The the uh, one of the most famous pastries the. Uh, Kipfel in, in oh, Austrian yeah. has the shape of a, of a of an early moon, which mm -hmm. is part of the of the, of the oh, right. flag. <laughs> um, the the presidential palace in Vienna has has a, a roof that is shaped in a in an Ottoman kind of style, which is quite yeah. expected too. Mozart has has uh, written the Rondo al Tur uh, Turku mm -hmm. um, as a uh, inspired by Turkish music, so there's a mm. lot of interaction going on. Yeah. So there's admiration to some part, but also fear. Mm. And uh, one thing I explained in the paper is that there's a carnival, a kind of institution or, or festival, happening in the villages. I collected the data every four years. Mm -hmm. So this is a, actually a fascinating event. The, the costumes and the way that that this mm -hmm. is uh, performed is, is absolutely unique. It's a UNESCO World World Heritage uh, that event. And one figure in that event is the Turk, and the Turk's mm -hmm. enchained and is basically crawling on on all fours, mm -hmm. all the procession being captured and being domestic kind of being being basically, um, yeah, captured and and uh, dominated and mm -hmm. and kind of it's a sign of, of a one uh, of a war that has been won so to say. Mm -hmm. So that figure is still a popular culture until today. The huh. Turk is still crawling every four years across the marketplace of that village. So this is a very rich history in terms of those two yeah. countries. And now, fast-forwarding to that, that soccer championship I just talked about, a local that is aware of these kind of cultural dynamics now sees the Turkish group on the marketplace says, oh my God, now they've come in through the back door. Mm. Right? The war is lost after all. But through mm -hmm. consumption, through immigration, kind of we asked the yeah. enemy in a way to come in to work for us, and now here they are, and we lost, and that creates an anxiety which is utterly unrealistic. Yeah, it's completely nonsensical, and it, it's actually fantastic that that a Turkish community would celebrate uh, their own countries or their former countries' team. That's something that the Austrians might want to join in. Yeah, uh, which they don't. Um, but that, that creates, this kind of thinking creates anxieties which are unfounded, but they are strong. Mm -hmm. Versus sometimes in Germany, you could see in Berlin, for instance, you would see the Germans and the Turks celebrate together the, the victories of the German team, but also the victories of the, of the Turkish team to some extent. Mm -hmm. And that's basically a very nice sign of integration, right? Yeah. So one understands each other a bit more. But that's an urban setting. And in a rural setting, where the proportion of immigrants is seen more 
where the threat of being kind of 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 the village crumbling and falling apart is is more visible. Mm-hmm. These kind of dynamics are inter- interpreted in a different way, and, and yeah, they cause anxieties, mm-hmm. instability. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. Um, so I think I just want to go a little uh, broader into just branding in general. So I was just wondering, so how how would you take the principles of uh, creating a, a business brand and use those principles to work on your personal brand? Yeah, I think that's an interesting question. So that that's that's now it's largely unrelated to that paper, but more to no, yeah, to we did branding. completely to left turn. <laughs> yeah, and and that would be that would be inspired, I guess, by the idea of of you know, as a student or mm-hmm. as a professional, you should or some sometimes as advice, you know, treat yourself as a brand. Mm-hmm. And you know, market yourself in this kind of context, right? Mm-hmm. So I think technically, it would be exactly the same thing. You can think about it. You can use a branding model, and you can mm-hmm. think about yourself in terms of what's my cultural background, what's my personality, what kind mm-hmm. of relationships do I want to nurture with my so-called clients or you know my employer mm-hmm. or customers. So you can use all those technologies. You can use social media to promote your brand. You find your brand core. You know mm-hmm. what is Cal all about? You know what mm-hmm. is it I do, and why do I do this? And and how, why would anybody care? So you mm-hmm. can develop that very very distinctly. Um, so you could use these principles, but I'm not entirely sure if it's a good idea. Okay. Yeah. Um, I was just curious because it was kind of. Um, I I think I heard it on you know some some podcast or something that. Somebody was talking about the the similarities between the two, but I mean, the at a certain point, you know, it, it's kind of like what you talked about. Don't the the article that you wrote that don't, you know, be careful flirting if you you know make sure you're not already married mm-hmm. is that you know you kind of if you're working on a personal brand you that's kind of the promise you intend to mm-hmm. deliver down the line. So if you, you know, if you you know kind of pigeonhole yourself uh, too early, uh, then that that's a little damaging um i think what i find critical about this thinking is if you do this self-branding exercise from a market-based view mm-hmm. so basically saying okay here's a market and i want to be i want to be an asset on this market you know what's the best way of selling myself it's a very sad kind of position to be in as a human mm-hmm. to be in that position as a brand that's perfectly normal yeah but as a human you're a bit more than that asset and if you if you're trying to think about yourself in these terms I'm not sure that's a good idea mm-hmm. in terms of your own self-worth and about, you know, embracing your humanity to the right. fullest. It might work, though, if you take it as a resource-based view. So if your ambition as a student, as a person, as a young professional is, I want to develop as a human. I want to develop my skills. I want to develop, you know, I want to become a better human, basically, or the mm-hmm. best human I can possibly be. That's very much about yourself and about your inner world. And then extrapolating that to to a market setting and say, well, where would I be able to develop these skills best mm-hmm. and then communicating that well so that that might be a better starting point rather yeah. than saying I need to bend down kind of to, to please yeah. the market let's see what, what I want to pursue as a human and then what about that I can I can play through the market what of that I might not be able to do through the market maybe I do things mm-hmm. that are not commercial as you do yeah. with your with your course project etc there's a mm-hmm. lot that is that requires branding principles, but it doesn't require necessarily uh, kind of rampant profit logic and, right. and these parts of it. Yeah. Um, all right. So I, uh, I guess I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, brand communities and just, uh, kind of what, uh, why are brand communities important and 
what conditions generally lead to actual loyal brand communities, strong and loyal brand communities. And we also, t- I mean, we, we talked a little bit about how loyalty is somewhat of a, uh, a myth uh, in, in mm-hmm. class and stuff, but if, if that were to be the case. Yeah, I think, well, first is there, there are a lot of brand communities, and there are a lot of, there's certainly a lot of forums and, you know, the settings in which community could technically happen. So I studied, I saw some actually some uh, informants from my previous study uh, that were part of a Hummer SUV brand community, off-roading community in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So these people would meet, and they would they would drive through the desert together. They would help each other across obstacles, etc. So that's the consumption part in in that particular element. They consume a product together. Mm-hmm. There's the influential study of Munich and the Win of two thousand one where they talk about Saab owners and Jeep drivers and Apple users forming some sort of community. But the, the reason for that is they, they like or appreciate similar products. So these are high-involvement products. Mm-hmm. They use a computer all the time and, and drive the car all the time. But there are brand communities around Nutella <laughs> and about you know soft drinks and, and things that are not as, as, as much of a... They're just you know simple commodities. So that's the one thing. There's, the brand offers an opportunity for people to get together. And then on top of that, that's where community forms, that's where people actually build social relationships. And very often, that's not really community. So we Mm -hmm. might call it a brand community, but the evidence for actual communal sharing, actually Mm -hmm. people building solid relationships that that kind of are reliable, is happening in some corners of those those forums, that Mm -hmm. is real community. And around a lot of brands, we have real community, but that's when people actually start to socialize properly. So they, um, they're doing it themselves. It's not just a group of people. It's actually like a community that interacts and yeah, shares well, with each let's other. Say, uh, let's say a, a Jeep community has uh, online has 10,000 subscribers. Mm-hmm. The odds that you have 10,000 community members are very low. In fact, you will have a few people that are actually building a community based on consuming that product. Mm-hmm. And most others are lurkers, uh, tourists, uh, trolls. Mm-hmm. You know that they just basically jump in and out, and but they they're not so much interested in the in the communal relationships. Mm-hmm. So that means a, a brand, a community, as in a forum or as an organization, uh, fulfills lots of different purposes for different people, and mm-hmm. the real community part is only a small part of it. Mm-hmm. A lot of people get information there. They need a problem solved. My colleague Caroline has written a paper about mm-hmm. problem-solving communities. So a few people do all the work, and a lot of people consume the work and benefit from it. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, so uh, just go ahead. Yeah. For your question in terms of how to get it right, yes, uh, uh, there there's an interesting article from uh, Lee and Fournier in the Harvard Business Review about getting brand communities right, and they mm-hmm. talk about the different forms uh, and the network structures, and they talk about different roles within the community. And that's a recommended read I would really suggest. Oh, okay. if, if a marketer is interested in building a community, take a look at that paper. Okay. Uh, that's that's really interesting. They explain what we know uh, uh-huh. so far about it. But what, from my perspective, what I recommend is if a company is interested in building a brand community, be aware that only some of them are actually loyal community members. Mm-hmm. A lot of them come for different purposes. And then think about what kind of structure you want to provide that, that caters to those different needs. Okay. Don't expect that everybody who signs up yeah. is a loyal uh, you know, customer, buys more than everyone else, and is mm-hmm. a great source of inspiration. Right. That's going to be disappointing. Yeah. Um, so the, I, guess I just wanted to, last thing on branding is just kind of 
talk about what um, what the kind of two way dialogue between uh, you know brands and consumers is doing to and what you know what expectations uh, of companies and brands to consumers now have that you know have you know are have risen because of the the two way dialogue. Yeah, my I think my understanding of that is that um, generally consumers had expectations forever for mm-hmm. a company, right? You know, hundred years ago, you would expect that if you're buying a garment, it would last a bit longer, or you want this quality. So the expectations have been there, and they've been disappointed um, in the past mm-hmm. as well. But now, uh, because of that two way communication, it is better two way communication. Still, you know, if you are unhappy yeah. with your product right in front of you, you have very little chances of. Of, you know, getting Apple to move and getting mm-hmm. them to change uh, because of your dissatisfaction but there are more possibilities for consumers to complain to make that visible globally to raise an audience to, to mm-hmm. start a protest that is actually substantial than it has been in the past mm-hmm. yet at the same time we still buy so many products that are terrible uh, that don't mm-hmm. work uh, where we are very unhappy about and we bash them on, on Amazon and we bash them on YouTube mm-hmm. and we bash them all over the place and yet still nothing is really changing yeah. they're still in business and they still sell, sell, sell the things so the companies now are a bit more aware and, and smaller companies are actually at risk mm-hmm. uh, through these dynamics larger companies might be less maybe if they're dominating the market they're basically almost untouched by these dynamics yeah so I think sometimes it seems to be possibly slightly overrated for some businesses. For other businesses, it's massively important. Yeah. Um, so uh, I guess just the last couple questions on just marketing in general is one that I try to ask to whoever I talk to. But what is uh, what's a like one non textbook that you would recommend to read about you know marketing or just that you found helpful and informative? Um, one thing is the um, a, a book that I really liked, which you have read uh, for the course anyways, Byron Sharp's How Brands Grow. Mm-hmm. That's a fantastic book that, that questions the idea of brand loyalty, that questions the idea on how brands grow, uh, what, what are the biggest or most interesting promising routes for brand growth. So mm-hmm. that's, a, that's an interesting book which has been possibly traveling around business circuits uh, last year oh, okay. quite a lot. A second book that might be not as well known is is Holden Cameron's uh, cultural strategy book. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a book where where they they focus on innovation and and strategy less from an from a practical and and you know technical innovation point, mm-hmm. but talk about how cultural innovation can help a brand to raise to rise so it's sometimes it's ideas it's consumption practices it's ideologies that those brands uh, perform and and offer to consumers mm-hmm. rather than the great next product okay. that's very often that's very advertising driven very communication driven and they use examples like coca-cola and mountain dew and and uh, also i think a clear blue pregnancy strip uh, oh. as as examples to show how how a change in communication and ideology and attitude towards a brand has has lifted and raised a category into a completely different different realm, and the innovation there, the strategy, wasn't so much about adding more sugar or you know having yeah. the next digital display on it, but actually changing the way people think about it. Okay. All right. Cool. Yeah, I'll pick those up. Um, so what's uh uh, I'll just we'll just end with this one, um, just for the sake of time. But uh, what is a brand 
that you've noticed recently that it, that you think is doing good work? Maybe this might be in relation to a paper that you wrote about, um, you know, doing well while doing good. Yeah, I think that I couldn't really say there is a this is you know particular band that stands out, but that paper was about was about you know criticism against marketing and how marketers respond. So mm-hmm. so in that paper, uh, my colleague Verena Visa and I. Um, the time Stöckel, that's why that's her name at the, oh, okay. at the paper, and now Verena Visa, uh, we, we looked at how marketers and consumers interact in basically becoming more ethical and becoming better. Mm-hmm. Uh, very often companies try to become better, but they fail, and then companies tell them what they're doing wrong, and then they try a next attempt, and so it's basically a back and forth between marketers and consumers, and the more demanding consumers get in terms of ethicality and, and sustainability, mm-hmm. the more opportunities marketers have to come through with with you know innovations mm-hmm. and yeah one thing that impressed me recently was was Unilever's uh, response to mm-hmm. being almost being taken over uh, by Warren Buffett's right. Berkshire Hathaway fund and saying that if we're being taken over by a company like that our interest our business structure etc will will change to an extent that we cannot want mm-hmm. um, and while I'm not you know involved in the inner circles enough to know if that's the actual reason uh, mm-hmm. But the communication about that was that Unilever is on a mission on, mm-hmm. on creating a triple bottom line business and improving themselves, which to some extent costs money. Mm-hmm. And I think their fears were that with with a capitalist structure like that, or a bit more, you know, investment-driven structure like that, right. they couldn't do that anymore. I found that really brave. Mm-hmm. If that was yeah. the motivation, a chapeau, spot on for doing yeah. And similar, the second example that I had was when I learned about Mark Zuckerberg wanting to donate uh, a substantial amount of his, his fortune mm-hmm. through the years and not keeping it for himself but donating it to other courses, which yeah. is billions now. Yeah. Um, and standing there saying, this is for my children and this is this is for the future, I found that massively impressive. Mm-hmm. He was bashed from all sorts of corners of how fake this is and, and what's wrong with it. Yeah. Still the gesture was massive. Uh, and I found that so impressive. At the same time, now seeing what Facebook does and what damage Facebook does and how little the company mm-hmm. responds to a lot of those things sets it into perspective. So there's the right. person trying very hard. Mm-hmm. There's the institution not trying very hard, possibly. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think yeah. the interesting part is I, I admire companies that try the next step and gradually improve mm-hmm. and say, this is what we're trying and we, we stick into these principles, mm-hmm. even if it hurts a little bit uh, on a long-run mission. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, yeah, I always kind of, you know, <laughs> draw my head for these comments. Yeah, very cool. All right, well, I think that's going to be it. Thank you very much for doing this. It was super interesting. So uh, hopefully, you know, everybody else will, you know, share it and enjoy it just as much as I did. So thank you. Thank you.